Welcome to Waypoint, an Oklahoma human services podcast intended to inform, educate, and enhance collaboration in service to Oklahomans. I'm Comfort. And I'm Casey. And we're on this journey with you together. On today's episode, we're speaking with Jeremy Buchanan, Shanika Lovett, and Jamie Winkler about Adult Protective Services, or APS for short. Jeremy Buchanan is the Director of Community Living, Aging, and Protective Services, also known as CAP, for the Oklahoma Department of Human Services. In this capacity, Jeremy manages an array of programs and services designed to increase options for older adults to live safely and independently, improve stability of residents in long-term care facilities, meet basic nutritional needs of older adults, and increase job opportunities for adults through expanded workforce programs. Shanika Lovett has been with OKDHS since 2007, with the entirety of her work being right here in APS. Because of her upbringing, she's always wanted to help families stay united. She brings that same passion for supporting families back home, where you can find her yelling from the stands at one of her children's basketball games. She looks forward to growing her knowledge in the area of helping families and servicing others. Jamie Winkler grew up all over the country as the daughter of an Air Force sergeant, but her family found their home in Oklahoma in 2005. She started her career with OKDHS in 2006, working as a direct care staff for Southern Oklahoma Resource Center in Falls Valley while she was completing her degree in human services management and then before joining APS a decade ago. Jamie and her husband share three adult children as well as three dogs. This year she is training to complete her first half marathon and will train for her first solo marathon by the end of the year. Well, welcome APS friends. Thank you so much for being here today. It's our pleasure. Yeah. So, so let's get started. Can each of you tell us a little bit about yourselves and kind of how you came into the roles you're, you're in today? Sure, I'll start off. I'm Shanika Lovett, and I've been in APS for almost 15 years. I have never worked any other uh, division in DHS except for APS, and I've been a supervisor now for about four months now. I'm Jay Winkler, and I'm with uh, Adult Protective Services the Issue Unit. Um, involuntary Services and Stabilization Unit. Um, I've been with DHS for about 10 years. Uh, I did work with uh, DDS clients at uh, Southern Oklahoma Resource Center okay. in Pauls Valley, Oklahoma for a while, um, and then came to, to APS in 2013. And my name is Jeremy Buchanan. I'm the director of our Community Living Aging and Protective Services Division. I've been with the agency since uh, 2013, so a little over eight years, going on nine years now. Um, and I've been the director of our APS program for a little over two years. Uh, and it's been um, a, a nice run. We've, we've made kind of big, uh, a lot of headway and a, a lot of changes to, to try to really serve uh, people in our communities better. Um, and I'm really excited to be here today because I want to highlight the work that, the, that we do in the communities and the, the impact we're making. Um, so thank you for having us. Oh, yeah, we're excited to have you. So uh, tell us a little bit about Adult Protective Services and, and kind of talk about your roles and responsibilities in the community. So, you know, Adult Protective Services, our, our goal is to investigate any allegation of abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Um, we, a, a lot of times there's caretakers involved. There's certain issues we do not investigate. If you have uh, something that is a non-caretaker abuse, that's assault, and, and that would be forwarded to law enforcement. But there are other things we investigate like exploitation, that it doesn't matter if you're a caretaker or not. If someone's exploiting a vulnerable adult, we will come and investigate that. Um, there's a variety of things that, that we do, but I think something people in the community may want to know is, is there's kind of two sides to what we do. We do the investigation to substantiate or unsubstantiate the allegations of uh, abuse, neglect, and exploitation, but we're also trying to meet 
people's needs and, and really meet them where they are. So there's this other side of what we do, which is just about providing services to the vulnerable people we serve and making sure their needs are, are met and that we're insulating them from any other you know future opportunities for abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And I think that's really where our hearts are, is really in meeting people's needs. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of purpose and passion in the work that we do. Connecting community resources to our clients, and then also there's, it sounds like there's a prevention piece almost for things to not happen again. Definitely. Like part of what you want to do is if someone's being abused, you, you want to, you know, address that allegation. Um, you you want to get the services in place to insulate them. We know that when uh, you kind of wrap the community around someone and you're meeting their needs, uh, there's a lot less opportunity for people uh, to to abuse someone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot less opportunity for them to be in a situation where they're vulnerable and it's not noticed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's an important part of what we do. So what does a typical day look like in the life of, of for you, Shanika? For me, um, my, my primary role is to uh, make sure that the specialists who are actually serving um, our clients, that they are, have what they need to, to get the job done. Um, so I do a lot of staffing uh, with um, the specialists. Uh, we do also, as supervisors, also speak with community um, you know, people in the community regarding services that could benefit our client. So majority of my uh, time, my day is uh, making sure that the specialists have what they need in order to make sure the client's needs are being met. My my area of expertise is child welfare. So that's that's my knowledge base and that's where I pull from. But I, I know what a child welfare investigation and referral and all of that looks like. Can you tell me what it looks like from the APS standpoint? What does it look like if somebody calls in and has a concern? If someone calls in and has a concern, um, the we have screeners who actually are also um, APS investigators who are able to um, screen a case, assign it to the appropriate specialist. And from there, the specialist has five business days, um, not including holidays or weekends, to actually get out to initiate that case um, with the client. Um, all of our cases start out with our clients. Um, from there, they are assessing the risk, needs, and the capacity of our clients so that knowing um, what our client's cognitive capacity is helps us to determine what type of services that we can actually um, speak with them about because we do want our clients to actually be a part of the services. We want them to be uh, engaged in and accepting and agreeing to the services that they feel are beneficial to them. So um, in regards to that, after a specialist has spoken with the client, have addressed the risk, their needs, and their capacity, from there they're simply just speaking with the client about services. And if there's something that the specialist um, can assist the client with doing to get the services um, in place, then that is also a part of um the specialist task regarding that case, that client. And capacity is an important word in APS too. I mean, I hear you guys talk about that a lot because I mean, capacity is related also to some of the limitations of your work, right? Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Capacity. Capacity is a client understanding um, their situation, understanding their risk, understanding their needs, understanding if they don't accept 
the resources and services that could possibly, um, you know, meet their needs, what that what that looks like. I mean, we all know that, you know, when a doctor prescribes a medication, they usually indicate what that medication is going to be beneficial, you know, to you for. If you decide you don't want to take that medication for whatever reason, do you understand the risk that are involved with you refusing to follow the directions of a prescription? If you understand that, you have you still have rights to self-determination. You have the right to fail. And that is indeed a part of the APS process in getting a client um, engaged in the service plan for their for their for their life. Now, Jamie, are you a part of a specialized unit? I am. Okay. I'm with um, the involuntary services and stabilization unit. So what does that look like? Uh, well, whenever the investigator goes out to a situation, if they determine that um, a client lacks capacity, and is at an immediate risk of death or serious injury or loss of all assets, um, then they would contact their supervisor and at that point um, possibly petition for what we call um, a Title 43A guardianship. That guardianship is an emergency guardianship. Um, it usually it goes from 72 hours to 30 days, and if we can't take care of that client's needs and get them stabilized in that 30 days, then another hearing will be had for 180 days basically six months, and that's when it's transferred to my unit. And then my unit kind of goes in and sees what the needs are to stabilize the situation um, so we can get them out as soon as possible. You know, we don't want to keep somebody under a guardianship. And there are different types of guardianships too, right? There are. There are. Ours is under Title 43A, um, which is an emergency limited guardianship. Um, It pretty much strips an individual of just about every single one of their rights. Um, they don't, we, we take into account what their wants and desires and needs are, absolutely, but they can't say no, if that makes sense. Um, a Title 30 guardianship is what most people are familiar with. A Title 30 guardianship is your friends and your family, the people who take care of you, um, that can petition a judge, that can just be there to help you um, with your finances or help you with your medical decisions and, and that kind of thing, but you pretty much maintain your, your autonomy in that one, type of guardianship. One of the core principles that is the client's right to self-determination, and I know anytime we're considering a, a 40, 43A emergency guardianship, you know, clients have to meet a criteria that there has to be that emergency situation, they have to lack capacity, um, and they're they're you know they're an immediate risk, and so, you know we we don't take that lightly that we're taking someone's rights and right to self determination away, we're we're but our goal is really to make sure that they're safe that they're protected, um, it you know it's it's uh, it, even when somebody's doing a Title Thirty guardianship, one of our core principles is people's right to self determination. Anything we do, we want to meet you know their need. And, and their desires and their wishes. So we consider that even, even in our emergency guardianships. Um, and, and we would hope that the community does that even in Title 30 guardianships, that they're acting on behalf of the client's interests. And I think that's probably important for the public to understand too, is that um, it's not really desirable for maybe, I think people maybe think that APS can just come in and uh, take an action on on something that's going on with someone, but but that's not even really necessarily the desirable outcome, right? It's not, and I know we do get a lot of 
um, you know, there, there's people, there's a lot of needs in the community. So when people are having challenges, you know, taking care of a family member, you know, sometimes our hospitals are having challenges discharging uh, someone from the hospital so that they can open up that bed. You know, a lot of times they turn to APS and they, they're like, hey, can you come take guardianship of this client? And we look, we go back to that, those criteria um, that, that guide our decision making. And, you know, we, we have to evaluate whether or not that's appropriate. Um, sometimes it's not appropriate. There's a lot of other pathways to meet that need. And, you know, things aren't, you know, well, we're going to move as quickly as we can to address those needs. But if there is a pathway, we want to follow those pathways to meet the client's needs and not have to go through a 43A emergency guardianship to strip them of their rights. So, and, and sometimes that's not appropriate because they don't meet the criteria. They're, they're not an immediate threat. There's no abuse, neglect, or exploitation occurring. And, uh, you know, this is something that we are continually trying to educate our partners in the community on um, and, and really support clients' right to self-determination and making sure that we're identifying other pathways to meet their need. And Jay, you have a, a guardianship story, right? You have a, or probably a lot of guardianship stories, but I know there was one yeah. we were talking about when we were um, thinking about this podcast. Uh, right. Um, actually, just recently, it was a huge, um, I, I call it a guardianship win, to be honest. Yeah. Um, we had a client that, as from what I can determine by the actual number, this client was was received guardianship on them back in like 2001. And at that time, it was necessary. She she has developmental disabilities and, and uh, mental illness that goes along with it. She was refusing medications. She didn't have a strong support system. Um, family wasn't really able to meet her needs or take care of her the way she needed to. She would like to run away. Um, there was self-abuse, um, self-violence, self-harm. And there just wasn't any, any support. There wasn't any... Um, um, care there for her to thrive and um, APS stepped in and, and make, um, secured a guardianship of her and then started putting things into place. So we started working with our, our partners and, and other divisions like DDS um, and was able to get her into a group home, get her services. Uh, she has a primary care physician. She has 24-hour care where caregivers make sure she has food, make sure she has <coughs> Um, her medications, uh, they, she started to work. She was working a little bit, making some pocket money, you know. Uh, they maintained her finances, so they paid her bills for her. They helped her even with a little savings account and, you know, different things so that if she wanted something in the future, you know, when you're younger and you want things like a bicycle or whatever, and as you get older, maybe maybe Beats headphones or something, you know, mm-hmm. she, would, she would have that extra money there, and it wasn't going somewhere else. Um, so she started to thrive. And we felt like it was time to step out, and that wasn't happening. So um, typically in the court system, if, if APS specialist says, you know, we don't desire to have this guardianship anymore, and this is why, um, the judges and usually the court systems usually agree, and, and they, they let APS step out. For this particular individual, it just wasn't happening. Um, recently, I filed a petition to uh, a motion to dismiss the guardianship because she's been stable. She hasn't had, there was, there's been no incident with this, this woman in nine years. Oh, wow. There's just really no reason for her not to be able to make her own choices. And we were kind of a hindrance at that point. You know, if she wanted to go on vacation, it had to go through a ton of channels. I mean, we had to seriously go through a lot of red tape to get her just to get on vacation. So she'd have to plan it 
more off, more advanced than even you or I would plan a vacation, you know, and it, it's not that easy. You know, you can't just say, I want to go here. Well, why? Do you have the funds? You know, and it's, it's a big deal. And medications, like if she wanted to not get a specific um, procedure done medically, you know, it was hard to to say, no, I don't want that procedure because we would, again, have to go through things. Or if even she wanted something, you know, oftentimes we'd have to go through the courts for that. And it just takes time. Mm-hmm. And and she was at the point now, she had services in place. She had advocates. She had everybody. And there was no reason for us to be involved. And we argued and argued. And they kept pushing it back. And they really, it was not looking good. I can tell you it was, man, I didn't know who we were going to get that dismissal. I wasn't, I wasn't hopeful at the time. And at the end of the conversation, she asked the judge in front of the judge in the courthouse if she could say something. And the judge was like, yeah, absolutely, you can say something. And she listed off her fingers everything she had heard us talking about in that courtroom, all of our concerns, and how she planned on overcoming those those roadblocks right how she forged her own pathway and it was just I get I get emotional thinking about it I get goosebumps goosebumps thinking about it in 20 years she shows she had capacity so when we talk about capacity it's not something that if it's gone one minute it's gone all the time you can get it back and she did and she learned and and now she's she earned her dismissal the judge dismissed it that day and it was incredible and she's able to just kind of she started crying you know she was so excited and she's been on cloud nine from what i've the emails that i've been getting ever since (laughs) so yeah she's it was it was an incredible story and it's one of the reasons we do what we do that's wonderful hope hope and independence Mm -hmm. i mean these are all so important like integral to the work that we all do right Mm I'm curious when field staff is going out, um, what what's like one of the main concerns you guys are seeing or, and and what resources are there to address it? I can say about half of our uh, referrals that we get are for self-neglect. I think that's something people don't don't realize. And, that, and that's people who there's not necessarily another person that's abusing them. They're just in need and they're potentially isolated, um, maybe don't have food, they're extremely vulnerable. So we're going out uh, on about half of our cases to address needs where somebody's just not able to meet their own needs. Um, and you know, Jay or Shanika can probably address uh, what that looks like when they're going out in the community better than I can because they see it every day. Most of the specialists run into um, concerns which you know anyone would have in regards to especially new specialists, going out to a home because we can't make our visit announced. So you're literally going to someone's house. Mm-hmm. They don't know you're coming. Um, and you don't know what's on the other side of that door, just like they don't know what's on the other side of the door where you are. Um, and when they see us, a lot of times they see us as the government. So we run into a lot of skepticism in even wanting to to speak with us when we're really there because we want to help. We want you to be independent. We want you to be safe. We want you to be thriving in this world. We want you to be in your home. We want you to be where you want to be as long as you're safe being there and your needs are being met. So a lot of times they run into um, just a lot of 
not feeling very comfortable in opening up to a specialist to say, yeah, I do think I need help with managing my money. Sometimes you have to pull that out of them just by looking around, seeing what their environment look like. You know, if you through conversation, you hear them say, well, yeah, you know, my water was turned off because I didn't have the money to pay it. Mm-hmm. Even if the water is back on now, that's still something that you can address with them for maybe in the future. Maybe another utility that, you know, may be needing to be handled in a better manner. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that is just trying to break down the barrier with the client and the family that you are there to help. Trust building. Trust building, yeah. And I think that also, I mean, we deal with this a lot in other program areas, right, where you're trying to just establish that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to need help. Yes. We all need help at different times in our lives. And um, there's that, like, sense of pride and yes. I want to do it on my own, but, but it's okay to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And you guys are pathways to help, so that's wonderful. Th- that kind of ties into a, another question we had for you about maybe some of the myths about APS. There are a lot of myths out there um, that I know, Shanika, you were talking about, like being the housekeeping police or, or whatever. Talk, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we a lot of times we get reports about, um, you know, someone having bed bugs or roaches or dirty dishes in the sink. Um, a hoarder. Um, those are things that, of course, you want to to have addressed because that helps you to be living in an environment that is clean and free of, you know, roaches or bed bugs or mice or whatever the the you know the nature may be. However, we are not our level of cleanliness compared to someone else's level of cleanliness is not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. So when we get reports saying, oh, you know, this person um, has dirty dishes in their sink and they've been there for weeks. We are not housekeeping police, so we can't necessarily go in and say, oh, my goodness, this looks like your dishes have been in there for two weeks. We need to to take you out of your home. I mean, there are some myths that we go in and literally if there's anything that's out of order or wrong that we are going to pull someone out of their home. And that is so far from the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's something that that. In, in my career that it's really hard to explain, especially to families. It's really hard to explain that, you know, the way you want to live and the way you live in your home may not be the same way that, that I live or Shanika lives. You know, we may have a different idea on what's acceptable and what's not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my best friend, she has to have it spotless. Me, you know, I got three kids, not so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? if, if I can walk through the room and nothing stinks, I'm good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I don't have bugs. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's my level of cleanliness. Um, but to some others, it's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to go into, you know, your dad's house and tell your dad, hey, you know, you have to go to a nursing home because you didn't do last night's dishes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. I see a lot of similarities between APS and child welfare. Um, one of one of them is that that when someone makes a referral, that child welfare will just go out and remove a child, and they'll just see it whatever way the caller is explaining it. What are some differences, though, between adult protective services and child welfare services? I know one key difference is is uh, we're always looking at the relationship of the caretaker um, in in any allegation of abuse, neglect, or exploitation. The relationship of the caretaker to the vulnerable adult matters. Um, And I don't know that that's the same in child welfare. Um, Just to give you an example, like we have some investigations that we forward to the Office of Client Advocacy, 
which I think is true in child welfare if they're, uh, you know, their 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 caretaker is an advantage provider, or being funded through any kind of Medicaid service. Um, That'd be like a nursing home or uh, or. Well, it's not a nursing home. Ad- advantage is uh, in-home okay. services in okay. the community. Okay. Uh, people that meet nursing level of care can be served in in their home, and mm-hmm. if it's a, an advantage provider, um, the allegation is against them, then that would go to OCA. Okay. So that relationship with the caretaker is a little bit different. Um, I think self-neglect is something you'll never see. I mean, that's not something that exists in the child welfare world. Mm-hmm. Um, but but when you're an adult and you have the right to make your own decisions um, and you're your own caretaker, you know, that's, like I said, a big portion of what we do is addressing self-neglect. Um, I think those are some of the key differences that we see. And I, I know that, you know, we have a, a unified abuse and neglect hotline, and I know we've done a lot of training with the hotline, but that's that's something that's a little bit of a struggle, kind of going back and forth between uh, these nuances that are different and making sure that we're getting the information we need and getting the correct uh, um, disposition to move forward on on the case. And that's something we continue to work for towards is just building capacity in both areas so we understand what those those differences are. So you talked about the hotline. That brings up another good question. So uh, just like we're all mandatory reporters for child abuse and neglect, we're also all mandatory reporters for adult abuse and neglect, right? So um, we we talked a little bit about about kind of the referral process and the investigatory process, but tell us a little bit about the, the referral process. Like how would I make a referral for someone if I'm concerned? Well, there's two ways. There's You can call the abuse and neglect hotline. Um, or you can, we actually have an online reporting uh, tool that you can use. You can go to abuseisnotokay.org and you can uh, do your referral online. Or you can call the um, hotline, which is 1-800-522-3511. And that is the hotline for both uh, Child Protective Services and Adult Protective Services. My heart. Yes. <laughs> I do. We give it out a lot. <laughs> I bet you do. I bet you do. So, um, I'm interested in the numbers always. So, like, how, like, what are your numbers, what does your data look like? <laughs> well, one of the great things about our APS system is um, we get great data. We see it in real time. It's something we use uh, from the, when some, we get a referral to when somebody's gone. It's, I mean, we, we use it in a lot of ways. I can tell you we get about 24,000 reports of abuse every year. Um, You know, not all of those are accepted. There are some things that we have to forward on to community partners because it's not, doesn't meet the criteria for APS. Um, Either there's no abuse, neglect, or exploitation. Perhaps this is not something that involves a caretaker, so we have to forward it to law enforcement. Um, I think we accept about 14 to 15,000 uh, investigations, and about half of those are, are self-neglect. Um, hmm. But we use data at, at every step in the process. We, you know, that's kind of just the, the overall volume. We also look at, you know, caseloads and trying to balance caseloads. We don't want to overburden workers. And something that I've really been invested in as a leader is, you know, when I first stepped into this leadership role, there were pretty grave imbalances across the state with how many cases people were taking on. So we've really tried to shift resources around to try to make, you know, create equity in the the number of uh, cases that people are having to address. Um, 
and and just you know giving the our people in the field what they need and you know that data provides uh, the insight that you need to know where to provide resources where to focus um, and I, and you know I know supervisors use data as well so you know Shanika can talk about the data she has at her fingertips and how she uses that to develop her team um, we use it as an engagement tool that's really what data is it allows us to ask questions uh, to gain insights and and to be agile in how we respond to the needs of our community and our workforce. Probably about, uh, I think, last month, for the month of April, uh, Tulsa County received probably a little bit under 1,000 um, reports. And Jamery is right, half of those were self-neglect um, cases. And that simply means that someone is not or is you know not able to take care of themselves or reportedly to not be able to take care of themselves or manage their money or something to that effect. So a lot of those cases, um, the self-neglect cases, are service cases. Those are cases where we know that this person is not being abused by a caregiver. Um, they're not being neglect- neglected by a caregiver. It's just something that a service that they may need um, to benefit that individual so that they are living a safe life in regards to their finances or in regards to their, you know, medical care. Mm-hmm. Shanika, can you talk a little bit about uh, just the, the data you use and, and how you use that to be supportive of your team and responsive to the needs of your community? Well, in regards to, I mean, like Jeremy said, we you don't want to um, over you know, overload a specialist because specialists are, are specialists are humans too. Mm -hmm. And we're humans serving humans. Mm -hmm. So we do want to look at whether you have a specialist who um, appears to be overwhelmed and you have another specialist who maybe refreshed, just came off of vacation and they're ready to go at it. You may have to, as a supervisor, shift a couple of cases because you don't want to overburden that specialist and you don't want that specialist to be um, out on a limb trying to help a a client and then they fall off. Mm -hmm. So I do try to look at and and we talk to our specialists daily. So you hear it in their voice. You get used to, you know, um, kind of their mood when they're feeling good or when they're feeling like they are defeated. Mm -hmm. Those are times they may not say directly to you that I'm overwhelmed, but as a supervisor and, you know, as an experienced specialist in the field, I feel like I have to protect them even if they are not screaming at me that they are being, you know, over overworked. Mm-hmm. So I do use that daily to look at how we can kind of shift some cases so that our clients are being, you know, yes, their needs are being met and they're being served appropriately. You know, the, we, we see some of the most challenging things in our community. That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Just in uh, incredibly tragic and sad situations, and it can weigh on you. So something, and, you know, we, we preach this. we got to take care of ourselves. You know, um, our supervisors know to, you know, look at look at our workers, and if they sense that there's, uh, you know, some burnout or they're stressed out, like we always want to address that. We have to take care of ourselves or we can't take care of, of our community. So it's something we're very cognizant of. And I know recently on one of our um, bi-monthly meetings that we, where I get to address all of APS, we brought in the EAP. Mm-hmm. Um, Laurie got to come and talk to them and talk about the resources we have at our disposal to make sure we're practicing that self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we're good, we can we can be good for others. 
because that secondary trauma is so real. I mean, the the work you all do and the things you see are so hard and heavy. And well, and and we all are in it because we care. Mm-hmm. Everybody says, "Oh, but you're only you only see them for a short period of time." But in that short period of time, you connect because we're asking some open ended, intense questions, and mm-hmm. we can connect just based on you know their answers. You know, you sit down and talk to somebody and try to find out why they're not going to the hospital. Like, I know you cannot walk out this door. Why are you not calling an ambulance? And they start talking. And, I mean, that that sits with you, you know. And then when you see some of the things you see, you're like, you realize that our most vulnerable population, most people don't even realize they're there, you know. If we got a call, it's because it's because someone called the ambulance one too many times and, you know, EMS finally called in a report and said, we don't know what to do. So, I mean, they have no friends, no family, no neighbors, mm-hmm. you know, and those are some of our most, most um, traumatizing ones. What, what, is, what are some service providers that are either A, doing a really excellent job in providing their services, or B, what, what would be more beneficial to really helping these clients see success, whatever that may look like for each one? What, what do we need more of? Caretakers. We need more caregivers to go into the home we need more home health aides that are that can do the job that can go in there and and see folks because I think if we would have a lot less um, emergency situations where individuals end up in nursing homes if we had a lot more home health aides and they're doing the best they can don't get me wrong there's it's not that they're slacking but we just don't have enough we need more. We need a whole, like, army of them. <laughs> this is part of that, like, I mean, we see this in DDS. We see this in child welfare. I mean, there that workforce shortage, mm-hmm. uh, child care even, that workforce shortage mm-hmm. is such a difficult place to navigate right now. It is. Because it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not always, you know, you don't reap the benefits of somebody telling you what a great job you're doing all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, what... What would you say to the community? Like, what what can we do? How can we prevent abuse, neglect, and exploitation? If you see it, you got to speak up, r- mm-hmm. report it. You know, that's our role is is to go out and investigate uh, the allegations and and try to get services in place to meet. Uh, you know, each individual that comes to us, we we want to meet their needs. So, yeah, check on your neighbor. Yeah, mm-hmm. on your neighbor. Mm-hmm. No, if you if you don't know um, what situation someone's in, if you suspect it, like you you got to go check. Mm-hmm. That's probably even harder during COVID, I would imagine. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, COVID isol- has isolated all of us. So for someone who's already maybe more vulnerable or facing some more difficult circumstances, that could be even harder to yeah, navigate. And that especially impacts um, vulnerable older adults mm-hmm. because they're the most vulnerable to COVID. I really can't. I want to. I'm sorry, Shanika. I, I wanted to say something, though, that I thought, um, I, at least in my neighborhood and in my area um, during COVID, is how many people stepped up. I mean, we had, I I live in a neighborhood, I live in an older neighborhood um, that, you know, a lot of of younger families are moving into, but predominantly it's, it's older folks that have lived there. And um, when COVID hit and everybody got stuck inside, I I noticed the community kind of banded together and they used technology and they used delivery services. And sometimes they just went and got it and put it on their porch, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, it was, I was scared when it first happened and then I was just in awe of how the community and I saw it in a lot of other communities too just people banded together I was going to say also um, education educating yourself on you know I mean someone who has dementia 
that may not be something that you have experienced in your family, um, but if you now have that in your family, educate yourself. There is programs and there are um, community partners that actually provide um, information on how to care for someone who has dementia, how to manage money, how to, you know, um, set appointments and things like that for our vulnerable adults that could actually benefit them to where they are not becoming an APS um, client. Mm -hmm. Pre-plan. Pre-plan. I mean, every single one of us never knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So, you know, pre-plan for your own care, for someone that you trust to be able to to handle things if, if you can't. And there are a lot of resources in the community. Like, I know one of the things that we try to do is just educate people on what resources are out there so that if you do find yourself in need, you know where to go. If you are stepping into the pre-planning, where, where would be the first place to start? Um, there's a lot of online resources. You can look at, like, legal aid can provide a lot of online resources if you don't if you don't want to do something as as um as binding as a guardianship, um, they have other resources available to you and other options. So you can, they would be a great place to start. And probably like advanced directives. I mean, all, all of those right. kind of usual things that we might think about. And the so. hospitals do it when you go in for surgery. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have you sign this stuff up before they even put the IV in. Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. So Shanika, you were talking about education too. Um, and that's such an important piece of the work of APS, particularly around exploitation. Um, we were talking before, before the podcast about how the agency really can remove barriers for people who may not understand even that they may, as perpetrators, that they may be perpetrating on a, a vulnerable loved one. So can you talk about how, um, what education looks like also on, on the perpetrator side? Sure. Um, Becoming someone's uh, representative payee um, through Social Security, whether they're receiving Social Security or disability, on um, the socialsecurity.gov website, they actually do have information on being someone's payee. And it gives you, you know, what your duties are, things that you shouldn't do, should do. Um, Things of that nature can help someone, a, a caregiver, be protected while they're doing the duties of handling someone's finances and avoiding the illusion that they are exploiting um, this care, this client. Mm-hmm. And I know our APS definition is, is uh, really specific. Uh, if you're uh, coercing or using your influence to get somebody's assets and, and they're, you know, if they're vulnerable or they lack capacity, that's exploitation. If you are responsible for, you know, helping, uh, you know, your your loved one or, or whoever you're taking care of for paying their bills and managing their finances, and you use you don't use those assets to t- take care of their needs, that's financial neglect. So, you know, our our definitions are very narrow. So, a lot of what we do is educating people on their what what they're responsible uh, to take care of and and making sure they at least understand that, because the consequences of of uh, you know egregious failures can can end up in someone uh, being prosecuted. Do you guys have any personal stories that you would like the public to hear? Personal, as in like things that have happened. Yeah, my my um, in my family, one of my family members um, was 
very presented with symptoms of, of Alzheimer's dementia, was having a lot of issues at one point. She thought I was my brother, my brother's wife, not my brother, my brother's wife, which was very awkward. Um, <laughs> and that was through, you know, that was through a Thanksgiving meal. But we also discovered while we were there um, that there was a there was a gentleman a couple houses down from the, down the street who would mow her lawn every other day. And she lived in an area where really there's no there's not a lot of grass. She has a lot of, of dirt and rocks. So I don't know what lawn he was mowing every other day or felt the need to, but he was certainly collecting a check from her every other day for mowing her lawn. Um, and she couldn't remember. She just thought it was time to, you know, pay the lawn mowing guy, you know. Um, it was difficult to it was difficult to have the conversation because this is my grandmother, which means this is this is my parents' parent. So it's mm-hmm. difficult to have a conversation with your parent that their parent may be vulnerable, mm-hmm. may be in need, may be having some issues because they don't want to look at that. They don't want to see that because they see their parents as their parents. I, I saw my dad um, not too long ago and couldn't believe how old he's gotten. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't matter that I've gotten older. It's, you know, I only see him as I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is probably more um, – more accurate with other people as well. They, I think they experience the same thing. So when you're trying to explain to them that, hey, you know, your mom might not be, you know, she might be having some issues. She might be having some memory issues. Oh, no, that's just what happens when you get older. What do they call it? The arteries are hardening. You know, the more arteries are hardening. It's like this might be a little more than that. Mm-hmm. And then when you find out that someone's taking advantage of that, it just there's an anger there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As an APS worker, seeing this all the time, knowing that it's happening, you know, under our roof is – not cool you know mm-hmm. so knocking on that door and and talking to that individual about hey you might not need to mow her lawn anymore it was was satisfying mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah that was something that had happened in my family and I might not have recognized things like that if I hadn't been trained so I can see how you know the average person down the street may not see it and you brought up a good point too about it how it's it's hard to think that about your loved one it's hard to think that um they may be having some issues. What What do you see with families? Uh, maybe Maybe they weren't aware that something was happening, and now APS has come in, and and then you have to have that connection with families and talk about these kind of maybe not force the conversation, but you know encourage right. the conversation with the family members. Oh, it's hard because a lot of times they're real defensive at first because they think you're telling them that they are abusing their loved one. And it's like, no, that's not what we're here for. We investigate that, yes, but we're here to talk to you about your loved one and some of the concerns we're seeing and wondering if you have any, you know, do you have any concerns? Are you are you struggling? And then we might find out that that single mom is trying to take care of her dad, Mm -hmm. you know, and work two jobs. Mm -hmm. And maybe she did miss, you know, bringing in his medications and filling his little pill box and because she was tired or she didn't get off work till late or something happened and I call them unintentional perpetrators they, mm-hmm. they're not doing it on purpose mm-hmm. um, they very much love their their loved one they just don't have enough support and so we want to encourage them to talk to us too when we show up because we're not always just there to to tell you you're wrong we're there to say, hey, how can we help? Mm-hmm. You know, what can we connect you to? What would benefit you right now if you had it? So, besides a million dollars, we can't. I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> we can't do that. We can't do that. 
I just love the the compassion. I mean, we, we see this, Comfort and I see this time again, and of course we work here, so we love all of y'all. But um, I just love hearing the compassion, the compassion that you all have for, you know, the, the client that may be experiencing this, but also the compassion that you have for maybe the perpetrator. And maybe, like you said, someone might just be tired. And there's really an opportunity there for the agency, agency to support those families and either come in on, on the front end or, or even then come in on the back end and offer some services. But one thing we were talking about for like the, the mom you were just talking about was respite. Um, can you talk to us about respite and maybe some of the other resources that the agency has for customers? I can. I know we have uh, programs. We have a, a lifespan respite grant, so it offers that service to anyone through the through you know no matter what their age. Um, and and the goal really is is to support caregivers. We know that when caregivers are supported, they're able to take care of their loved ones longer, and that delays um, institutionalization. Institutionalization. We don't want to see families sending their loved one to the nursing home when we know that if we just support them and give them what they need. To succeed, they're going to be they're going to feel comfortable taking care of their loved one. So there are resources available. There's you know not just respite. There's other resources that you can plug into too. But respite's an important one, uh, and that allows you know a, a, someone to come in and give you some relief so that you can take a break, go on a vacation, um, and have the comfort of knowing that your loved one is cared for. And what are the criteria for that? If you need it, reach out. Okay, ask. See, that's so, I mean, that, ha- that has to be relieving for families. I can only imagine, like, when someone calls for a respite or something, and I know that's a different program, but just almost, I'm sure that just the tears, I can just only imagine. I That is true. I had a, a family where the um, it was a mother, and she was raising a developmentally delayed uh, 30-plus-year-old um, guy, and she had health issues herself, and her son was actually the client, but when I, you know, he's nonverbal, so when I'm speaking with her and she kind of alluded to, well, you know, I'm doing the best I can and I've skipped out on a couple appointments that I'm supposed to have and, you know, he's not able to be left alone. And I was just trying, as she talked, I was trying to think, how can I help her? How can I help the situation? Because if I help her, I'll actually be helping my client. And respite actually popped up in my head. And so when I mentioned it to her, and we had just recently um, had that program kind of introduced to us or reintroduced to us, and I was kind of reading a little bit of it to her, she literally started crying. So I started crying. (laughs) (laughs) Because she thought, oh, my goodness, there is something out there, and I don't have to actually jump through hoops to get it. And as I was reading it to her, I was actually feeling empowered because it it didn't cause for her to have to jump through hoops. Mm -hmm. And so that actually was a very good outcome regarding that client because this lady also had a mother who was, I think, 90, and she was declining, and she was trying to figure out a way of how can I go visit my mom before she passes, but I also have this 30 you know, 30-plus-year-old son that I have to make sure that he's covered, how can I do it? And it was not an option of her taking him with her to visit because of, you know, her mom's condition. 
So that actually worked out pretty well because she was able to use respite to go visit her mom, and she also was able to use respite to take care of some of her medical needs. We do do good. We do do good. A lot of good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I we can do. guarantee you that we've, we have helped more people stay in their homes safely and with, with things that they didn't even know existed. They just thought they had to just go and just do it. And they don't. We, we help as much as we can. We can't solve everybody's problems, and we can't, you know, put Band-Aids on absolutely everything, but we can, we can offer help. Mm-hmm. You know, even if I, I had clients that had my, um, my phone number and would call just to vent. And then when they were done, they were like, and I know you can't do anything about it, but it feels good that you know where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it was nice to be able to be that, that sounding board that she knew mm-hmm. that wasn't going to run around and post it in the community you know, pamphlet the next month. <laughs> I don't think our community so. realizes how much just listening to folks can mean. Right. Truly. And truly listening. Active listening is really important. And not just listening to hear the things that, that you're waiting to hear, those little keywords. You need to actively listen to people because they will tell you everything you need to know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So related to, to talking, um, you guys also do a lot of education and awareness out in the community, which then helps people um helps people helps us protect vulnerable adults but also helps the community kind of surround vulnerable adults can you talk a little bit about education and awareness and kind of what that means our partners are so important to the work we do because we can't do it alone we don't offer really any direct services we're we're linking people to community partners to other resources in the human services programs Um, we don't have foster homes like child welfare does so you know we're, we're relying on nursing home providers if someone needs to go to into a nursing home to work with us so those community partnerships we cannot do this work if we're not working on strengthening those um i have this is kind of not uh, just just a curious question when there's abuse in a nursing home where what role does APS or does APS play any role? We have a specialized unit that investigates allegations of abuse, neglect, and exploitation within nursing homes. I know that uh, you know there's kind of some different aspects of those because the health department licenses licenses nursing homes, so we work with them um, as part of that investigation. But we do go into nursing homes and we investigate there. So if you see something in a nursing home that's not right and you suspect abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Let us know. We'll okay. we will definitely go look into that. Okay. So keep talking a little bit about the community training that we do with partner agencies, and tell us a little bit more about what that looks like and how we work together. Some of our uh, we we have a ton of partners. We work, you know, we because we deal with exploitation. We have to have partnerships with the banks. Um, at my level, I work with the Oklahoma Bankers Association. Um, just trying to figure out how can we communicate better and build processes where we're able to get what we need. What we, need. we work with hospitals, um, community partners who provide services, you know, Social Security Administration. So we're constantly looking for ways we can communicate better, ways that we can have a process that works for both of us so that we can get what we need and we're giving them what we need, what they need to move forward. But I'm going to let them talk a little bit more more about that because they are in the community every day and they're actually the ones going out and talking to the, the partners directly. Um, we used to have programs where we would go into nursing homes and I don't know if you guys are aware of, of um, something called in-service. So these nursing homes with these um, their nursing staff, CNA, CMAs, all of them, um, they have to have 
it depends on how often they do it, but usually monthly um, in-service meetings where they they kind of teach their staff new things um, or remind them of old things or, or whatever. And we were a part of, in our community, um, the in-service programs for a lot of our local nursing facilities um, where we would go in and we would talk to them about what APS does and doesn't do and um, where they can find help and things. And, and it was um, then we would reach out to them like, well, what do you look at for, for someone who's coming in? Like if I, if I have a client, how do I know that, that you would be a good resource to send their information to? And so it, it's kind of a back and forth. And we do that with uh, home health, um, home health agencies that are contracted and not contracted with DHS for Advantage Services and, and things of that nature, hospice services. Um, hospice does so much more than I ever knew mm-hmm. they ever did. Um, until I started with APS. I honestly thought it was just an end-of-life thing. That's who you call in to make people comfortable, and then they pass. And that's not all they do. They do so much more than that. And they are a huge resource for our nursing home facilities because they send in extra staff. You know, um, it's it's a great uh, program. Um, there's law enforcement. We work together with law enforcement and with our local district attorney's offices. I know... Um, in the past, there has been kind of a disconnect between what we do versus what they do, and neither one of us really understood each other. Um, so I, I found that to be a roadblock and, and kind of went in and just kind of talked to folks and said, hey, you know, if I have somebody that I know needs prosecution, if that case has come through and we know that they've done wrong, what do you need for us for, to be able to prosecute that case. And then we found step by step what to do. And in doing that, we were able to get more prosecutions um, for, for vulnerable adults that have lost so much um, than we ever had before. Um, and just opening those communications, those conversations, you know, having meetings, going to community outreach. There was something called the Towers in Muskogee, Oklahoma. It's a, it's a building for disabled folks. They live little apartments bunch of apartments for disabled people and they had a community meeting downstairs in the lobby and they invited us to go talk to them and that was a huge thing because a lot of them were like I I didn't know that that wasn't right Mm -hmm. you know my lady who's been my rep payee forever said that I owe her all this money whenever she Mm -hmm. she goes and gets my groceries and it's like what's her name (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) let me go have a conversation So, I mean, it's, it's, it's those community outreach programs are, are huge and very beneficial for both sides, for both sides. It's, it's important. I know uh, I reached out to the DA's council just about trying to in- increase communication and make sure we're getting prosecution on, on these cases that we know uh, needs action. And as part of that conversation, they ended up applying for a, a VOCA grant. That's Victims of Crime Advocacy, and they got it. Um, and and it, it came out of that conversation that we had with them. That program is going to put an assistant district attorney in both Tulsa County and Oklahoma County, specifically looking at elder abuse issues. Uh-huh. And uh, another great thing about that program is it's going to help us establish multidisciplinary teams across the entire state where we come around these difficult cases and talk about what do we need to work together on to get prosecution on on these ones that are uh, egregious offenders. So I know that work has just started, but okay. um, it's reaching out to our partners and figuring out how we can work together and how can we get to you know our common goal um, and end abuse, neglect, and exploitation of vulnerable adults, or at least prevent, prevent it from, you know, in the future from serial offenders. And so 
um, I'm excited to see, you know, what that grant is able to accomplish and how those partnerships will be strengthened through that. So we've talked a little bit about this, and, and this is our last question. So, but we've talked a little about about this throughout the podcast. But like you guys, is why is present in almost everything that you do. I mean, I hear it everything. Every answer that you gave was like, "This is my why. This is my why." But can you talk about that a little bit more and? And about, you know, why is it so important to protect our elders? That's a rhetorical question. I mean, I know the answer to it. But why, why do you all think it's so important to protect our elders? Well, it is important to protect our elders, um, just like it's important to protect children. Children are on one um, end of the life spectrum and, you know, elderlies are on the other. It is important because they have lived or worked and you know, came to this point in their life where they should not be bothered with someone who's coming in and taking advantage of them because they are older. Um, And then you look at it also in regards to your own personal life. Um, You know, my parents, I don't have a dad anymore because my dad passed away. But I think about how those who I come across client-wise, who their their dad is still alive. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you wind up kind of sharing your story with them on, you know, what your relationship was or is with your parent and how maybe what they're experiencing, you know, like Jay said, that it could be something where they're just overwhelmed and just trying to figure this out. Not that they have a, a problem of caring for their loved one, but that they have other barriers in life that is making that a hard thing. And sometimes us coming in, we can help a caregiver uh, lessen that, that burden to where they are uh, more present and able to fully care for that loved one, um, you know, so that they remain in their home and are safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about my why and listening to you, and we, have, we all have very similars, similar whys. Mine is uh, for our elderly um, and for our our disabled and vulnerable, life is so much harder for them than it is for your average person. And life is hard for everybody. I get that. But when you have a vulnerability or you have your elderly and maybe you are forgetting some things and you're starting to enter into dementia, it's very dark. It's very dark. And the people that you trust over the years, you find out you can't. And it just, it gets you, it hardens you a little bit. And then that darkness gets darker. Mm-hmm. And I have always wanted to be the kind of person that just brings a little light, yeah. you know? I mean, I, I might not be able to brighten it up, but but I'm gonna hold a little light and I'll sit with you. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my biggest things and um, a lot of the reason I really enjoy being at, at issue is I've, I've always felt, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care how awful of a person you've been years and years ago. I don't believe that anybody should ever have to die alone. I just don't. It's, it's very strong within me. So, you know, I have a client that was passing away and nobody could be with her. And I sat with her and I held her hand. She didn't even know I was there probably. Maybe she did. But it was important. And I love the work we do because we get to be we get to hold that hand. We get to be that light, even if we can't fix it. You know. As you were talking about that, Jay, uh, I'm reading Brene Brown that right now, and uh, she talks about uh, like 
being the light and, and also protecting our light, but, but how we don't blow each other's candles out. We, mm-hmm. we have to be people who help guard someone else's light when it's kind of fading. And so that, that made me think about that. I'm going to have to read her. (laughs) I told you we don't cry alone. I'm tearing up over here. (laughs) What about you, Jeremy? You know, before I came to work for DHS, I I worked uh, a job that didn't, like it didn't align with who I am. I didn't feel passionate about it. The thing that I've loved about working for human services is no matter what you're doing, you know you're making an impact in your community. Mm -hmm. Like this is work that feels good to do and I'm passionate about it. And I've, I haven't seen more passionate people than our, our people who work in, in the field in APS. They bring passion and purpose to this work every single day. And I guess the thing that, that I would say is, you know, people as they age, these are, these are our, our parents, our grandparents, our uncles, our aunts. It's going to be us. It's going to be our children mm-hmm. someday. And we need to, we need to, recognize their contribution and provide the same supports that we do for anybody else throughout their, you know, we, we want to preserve people, have compassion for people, you know, help them uh, live their life with dignity. Mm-hmm. And, and so often aging, um, when you, you're starting to lose capacity, there's a loss of dignity and, and control that people are experiencing. We just need to, to, to love people. <laughs> and, and as they age, we need to give them the, the support they need and recognize that it's important throughout the entire lifespan. Um, and I know we do everything we can to bring to get the community involved, to wrap the community around people's needs. And we just need more of it. We need more partners. We, we need um, people to care and people to recognize that this is important work um, because we can't do it alone. Uh, but we're gonna, we're gonna keep going, right? We're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep forging those partnerships. We're going to keep bringing that purpose and passion to this work every day because we know we're making a difference. Jeremy, I gotta say, I, and I can't, I can't speak for for all of us, and and I'm sure, I'm sure Shanika would agree that, you know, in the decade that I've worked for AP or the, for APS, yeah, I've worked, a, I've worked a decade for APS. A decade. <laughs> <laughs> for the decade that I worked for APS, I have never experienced a leadership the same way a leadership is now you fill us with so much hope as workers Mm -hmm. you know things that we didn't know would ever come back when you know it it was dark for a while for us and you're kind of our light because you you share your passion and you show us every day and you haven't faltered once and um and I'm for one very grateful because you really you really pushed back all the reasons reminded me of all the reasons I'm in this job and kind of gave me more hope to to take it further and you know and continue with that career and I I appreciate you thank you for that that's humbling it's beautiful great leadership great leadership Mm -hmm. that is true all righty well if we don't have anything else Mm -hmm. to ask or add do you guys have anything else thank you for having us this has been great uh just to showcase the, the work we do so thank you okay thank you guys Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Waypoint. We're on this journey together. To learn more about adult protective services, including the warning signs of abuse, neglect, and exploitation, and how to make a report, visit abuseisnotok.org. We hope you'll continue to join us on this podcast where we'll explore topics that affect and uplift Oklahomans. Don't forget to like this episode and subscribe to our podcast so you're notified when each new episode drops.